Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Mercury damages energy on a number of different ways through adrenal function and kidney toxicity, through mitochondrial toxicity, and through thyroid toxicity. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. I really loved this frank and approachable discussion with the very intelligent Dr. Christopher Shade. I have tried to avoid this topic on mercury issues, but honestly, it's not really avoidable for a lot of people, and he brings a pretty balanced approach to it. I asked him to go deep because the Less Stressed Life listeners are very health savvy, and he definitely delivered on that with maybe an occasional F-bomb, just so you know. That said, I think this episode will sink in even better if you have a working knowledge of detoxification systems. So if you want or need a big picture on detox and its functions, where I get into the science as well as products that work well for this, please check out my detox masterclass and protocol at kristabigler.com forward slash detox. All right. So today we have Dr. Christopher Shade, who is founder and CEO of Quicksilver Scientific. And his background is really in mercury stuff. So we're going to talk about mercury. He's got a lot of knowledge, passion for healing on chemistry, biology, which we can talk about. I think his undergrads are environmental science and PhD in chemistry. He's a recognized expert on mercury and liposomal delivery systems, which are really our topics that we want to talk about. He has lectured and trained doctors in the US and internationally on the subject of mercury, heavy metals, and human detoxification system. Dr. Shade's current focus is on the development of cutting-edge lipid-based delivery systems for nutraceuticals such as liposomes and microemulsion systems to address the growing need for high-quality, affordable detoxification solutions. Welcome, Dr. Shade. Thank you. Happy to be here, Krista. All right. So let's talk about the topic that I feel like you've been talking about for the better part of 20 years. I don't know if this started in your master's. Tell me how you decided. I don't know if this is a very popular topic for people that are going through grad school to say, you know, I'd really like to focus on this and then make it my life's work. So tell me about how you decided you were going to end up doing mercury toxicity studying. Yeah, very few people actually decide what they're going to do You know, <laughs> early on. It just happens to them. And when you go back farther in what I was doing, I was raised by an academic family and I was kind of this, you know, non-believer in things. And I got to college and opened my mind quite a bit. 
and was a little disillusioned. I was in science tracks. So I was a little disillusioned with that. I was doing environmental science. And I realized that most of environmental science is just sort of following around polluters and pretending that you're measuring their pollution, but uh, you're just sort of enabling. And I left school and I got all into organic agriculture. I was all sustainable ag stuff. And this is way ways ago. So this is you know, back in the 80s. And so I started organic farm, I started doing all this stuff. And then I got into education and research around organic agriculture, sustainable agriculture. And then uh, I met someone who wanted to get married, and I wasn't making any money doing that. And so I was like, I'm gonna go back to school, get a master's degree. So I got a master's in agricultural pollution. So nutrients coming off off of farmland and how they're processed by the system. And then I did that as a master's at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. And then I went to Illinois and I was interviewing there to be doing that on a PhD level, but I found it really, really boring. At least the people that were doing it there, it was just, there was nothing really to it. And there was this one guy, Bob Hudson, that they, you know, they march him around, you talk to different potential advisors and they throw me at this guy. He's not doing nutrient stuff so much like he does it peripherally, but what he's really into is global biogeochemical cycles of elements. And he had a global carbon cycling model and he had a global mercury cycling model. And like he asked me a couple of questions that were just the most intelligent ones that anybody had asked me around nutrient cycling and redox zones and environmental processing and things. I was like, wow, this is really good. And he goes, by the way, are you going to lap? And I'm like, oh, I'm great in the lab. He goes, can you develop a mercury speciation system for me? Because I want to get all my own data. I'm using everybody else's data. I'm like, oh, absolutely. What's mercury speciation? And so I went to work for this dude because he was smarter than the other dudes. And they borrowed stole equipment to start developing analytical systems for separating different forms of mercury. That's the speciation part. And so I got a patent around that and then uh, was encouraged by the Office of Technology Management to go commercialize that. Started doing it in environmental testing, but I really had wanted to get back into human health stuff. And and so when the big crash of 0809 hit, some people told me that during the Great Depression, the only segment of the economy that was kept growing was healthcare. And I'm like, good enough for me. And I just jumped right into healthcare. And right at the same time, people inter- introduced me to Hal Huggins and Dietrich Klinghardt, sort of the early luminaries in mercury toxicity and detoxification. And uh, I had this testing system. I had the first of our detox products and boom, just went all the way in. And that was what I grew the company on. Cool. I was going to ask about mercury speciation, but it's splitting it up. I don't know if that's how we should say it. It's at the very top is mercury. And then what are the types? Yeah. So you've got methylmercury coming into you from fish. You've got inorganic mercury that's coming to you from your dental amalgams. Some of the fish sources breaking into that. You've got ethylmercury from vaccines and that's breaking down into inorganic. So when you take a sample measuring the different forms in it, that's the mercury speciation. All right. Where does methylmercury versus ethylmercury versus inorganic mercury from, I think you called inorganic from amalgams. Where does that tend to hang out in the body because these hang out in different places is what you've figured out, right? Yeah, they absorb differently. They 
partition into different parts of the body, and then they excrete differently. And so methylmercury tends to be a little bit more intracellular. Like these are kind of generalities, but uh, then we can get into the specifics. So the methylmercury is a little bit more intracellular, inorganic, a little bit more extracellular. Methylmercury gets into the brain very easily, but also gets out. Inorganic mercury, if it's in your blood, cannot get across your blood-brain barrier. Which one? Inorganic mercury. Oh, okay. But if it's formed inside your brain, it's very, very slow to get out. So it's like, well, how does it get there? So all these forms. So from the amalgams, you actually get mercury vapor. You get a a metallic vapor that goes right across your lungs into the blood. It can go right across the blood-brain barrier, placental barriers, goes wherever it wants. But it doesn't last long. It runs into a reaction with catalase, the antioxidant, and it's immediately oxidized and turned into inorganic mercury. So as a vapor, it can get across your brain, hit catalase, and break down into inorganic mercury and get stuck there. Very slow to come out. Methylmercury from fish is moving around and it's slowly demethylating. It's a slower reaction, but it does happen. And so that goes from methylmercury to inorganic. So remember, methylmercury from fish can get across the blood-brain barrier, and it also can come back out very easily. So if it goes in and oxidizes to inorganic mercury, it gets stuck in. The vapor, if it goes in, oxidizes, gets stuck in. And then you have ethylmercury from the vaccines. That is also very uh, fluid and its ability to move through the body, uh, but it breaks down much faster than methylmercury. So you get residual that gets into the brain. Methylmercury, the mercury vapor and ethylmercury both cross placental barriers so they can get into the kid. And you actually have more in the fetus than you have in the mother. Now, why is that? Why does it move so fluidly everywhere? And what kind of absorption do you have in your GI for methylmercury from fish? You get 95% uptake. So it goes everywhere at once. Why? People will say wrongly that it's because it's lipophilic or fat-soluble. It's not. It's because when you absorb it, it's bound to the amino acid cysteine. And the molecule that is the conjugate of cysteine and methylmercury looks to your body like methionine. Mm -hmm. And so it's called molecular mimicry. And so that's brought across the L-neutral type amino acid transporters that bring it into the blood from the GI. Same ones bring it into the brain. Same ones pass it off to the developing fetus because it needs a lot of protein. So, boom, yeah, feed it up with methionine. And so there's this mistaken moving around of it. Eventually, you recognize it for what it is, and you clip it onto glutathione, and then it starts going out of the body. Hmm. So none of that's as simple as you want it to be. Like, oh, inorganic's always there, methyls are always there. Now, on the way out, it gets a little simpler because inorganic mercury goes through the kidneys and, well, Inorganic mercury goes through kidneys and liver GI. Methylmercury just goes liver GI. So inorganic mercury does build up very heavily in the kidneys where it's nephrotoxic, damages adrenal function, and damages, you know, mercury damages energy on a number of different ways through adrenal function and kidney toxicity, through mitochondrial toxicity, and through thyrotoxicity. But it does build up in the kidneys, whereas methylmercury and inorganic mercury both build up in the liver. The brain 
you know, it depends, you know, what your source is, but the long-term deposits tend to be of the inorganic mercury versus short-term in and out is methylmercury. Okay. So it's kind of a problem for everyone. So I guess I have a question. My first question is, are we on the same page across medicine and world on how mercury amalgams affect our health? Are we all sort of on a different page? I will say this about like other things. We're not on the same page about this. This is how we think it works. We're not on the same page with ethyl mercury in vaccines. Like, are we on the same page about this? It's hard to find good information about mercury issues, as you're aware. Yeah, no, we're not on the same page. Not at all. There's too much liability in the world for everybody to get on the same page. So, you know, when did they make mercury amalgam? It was in the late 1800s. And they used to use gold leaf and drill out a cavity and pack gold leaf in there and took forever and cost a lot of money. And then these French guys were like, hey, look at this. You can make this uh, mercury silver amalgam. It's kind of like a putty. We just stuff the shit in there and we're all good. Some start cracking teeth and all these things. And they slowly got better at it. And, you know, it's an 1800s technology, but we kept it going. Like, and it's still out there. And it was just making a ton of money. And you can't just suddenly say, wow, this is really no good for you. And people latch on to these ideas like, no, it's all stabilized in there, but it's not. We can measure it. It's all coming out. Or, oh, it's so little, it just doesn't matter. But then you get into the genetic and epigenetic variability of people's susceptibility to toxins. There was a study done in Portugal called the Casapia study. And they took say 100, 200 people in each group. And there was these kids, they either give them amalgam or they give them composite and they tracked them for a couple of years. And if you take the aggregate of the people and you give them like neuroprocessing tests, there's something called a Stroop test. And, you know, look at some stuff, repeat it with your fingers. It's just this neuroprocessing stuff. And in the aggregate of the two groups, there was no difference. All right. Okay. So it's not neurotoxic. But then if you subdivided them into certain SNPs, there were certain SNPs that involved metal processing. And there was a vast difference where the more mercury they were exposed to, the deeper this cognitive neuroprocessing thing was affected. And so it's like a lot of things that are low grade levels, there's going to be groups that are susceptible, but it wasn't a small group. You know, it was like 10, 20% of the population were highly susceptible to the neurotoxic aspects of this. To be clear for the audience, they took the groups and they also looked at their genetic data and certain genetic SNPs or polymorphisms did not process it as well. And it it was very significant when you split the data like that versus just amalgam. Aggregate, I mean, it's just a big mess, you know, population dynamics. It's just like everybody's all over the place. But then you take the subsets and amongst the ones with these polymorphisms that had composites, they had no issue at all. And the ones who had the amalgams, you know, there was a big change in their neuroprocessing according to the amount of amalgams that they had. Didn't see that at all on the composite side. And that, the aggregate data was played all up. Oh, it's all fine. You know, nobody brought up. When the second paper came out, it was just like buried, you know? And and so people go for these simple answers and they like them. And the most annoying people to me are the intellectuals because the intellectuals, PhDs, freaking horrible at this you know they're like they're all fear-based and they're afraid of the man and they're what's the man the man is the source of money for them so if you're a phd how are you going to get 
how are you going to become famous? You know, so everybody's after either money or power, you know, and you never get to get money as a PhD that much. So you go for power and you have to have publications. That means you need funding. And who gives you the funding? It's only two groups. It's the government and industry. And really you want government money because it's not biased. So of course it's fucking biased. You know, the CDC and the NIH said this is okay. They don't want you showing them up. And so what if you say something that pisses them off and you don't get money from them anymore? And so they're always afraid. And they're always, oh, no, there's no problem. So in grad school, I'm measuring all these bugs and all these fish and birds. And we're worried about lipofusin development and the liver of the fish. But we're like, oh, yeah, all that stuff in your mouth no problem. Like, how far up there do you got to put your head in order to ignore all this stuff? And then, well, the aggregate data, it's okay. But that's not how this all works. There's susceptible groups and there's problems from that. And ironically, it's like fish has become the one thing that people will agree on. Can't eat too much high mercury fish because nobody made it into a vaccine preservative and put it in your arm. And there's no autism thing around there. Nobody made it into a medical device and put it in your mouth. They're just swimming out there in the ocean. And so we'll put it all on them. That's about the lay of the land out there. Mm -hmm. On the controversial topic of vaccines, do you feel like mercury, because there's a lot of different words for this in the ingredient list. And since you're in this space, do you feel like it's been removed much better from vaccines or not really? Oh, no, it's not in the vaccines anymore. Not in the pediatric vaccines. Mm -hmm. When I was looking at these things, it was still in flu vaccines, and then they started taking it out of the flu vaccines, Mm -hmm. and they just put other stuff in. So it's sort of like the sort of dirty little secret around the mercury. Like they said it was a preservative, like an antimicrobial. Thimerosal is an Mm -hmm. antimicrobial. Mm -hmm. That's the ethyl mercury thiosalicylic they put in there. But it was also used quite a bit as an adjuvant in veterinary medicine, but they never listed it as an adjuvant. They listed it in as preservative. And so they must have formulated knowing that it was an adjuvant too. And it was one of their like dual duty ingredients, because like I said, veterinary medicine, they used it as an adjuvant all the time and just doing immune studies. And so then there was all this sort of like, yeah, but it's in there, but they take it out, but it's really, it's hidden in there. Like, no, I analyzed the stuff. It's used to be a ton in there and now there's not. And then there's all that, you know, everybody gets lost in the, did mercury cause autism? Did it not cause autism? You know. It's too simple. Yeah, it is. It's really, it's always preloaded kids. They're always, and you, you know, I go to autism one every year. I got maps and all this stuff. I listen to all these mothers. I meet all these kids and it's always, everything was fine. He went in and he hadn't been in in years. He was sick. They had him on an antibiotic. They had him there. So they gave him all five vaccines at once, you know, and it's always a stacked kid. He's under all kinds of stress. And then they put a ton of these in at once. They don't do one and then go back later, do another go back later, do another. That was how I ended up doing it with my kids. I'm like, how do I make sense of all this? You know, I make sure the kid's healthy and he gets one. (laughs) And back then you could get M, M, and R, you know, and I was like, you get one, two months later, you get another, two months later, you get another, never do it when they're sick. And that's all the story. And so this runaway immune reaction goes on. And any little bit of safety study they did was not on stacking four to seven vaccines all at once. And probably the coolest thing I ever heard about vaccines and autism was from a historian. He, was a, he specialized in the history of vaccines. And he was speaking at one of these more radical medical events. 
And I was hanging out and talking to him. And he goes, yeah, well, see, the way it all went down, it was, I don't remember when this was. Let's just call it the 50s. They were given vaccines, and it was the old style. You attenuate the virus. Like, you just beat it up a little bit. And then you inject it in there. And, you know, it's not virulent enough to take off, but it's coherent enough as a viral particle for you to form an immune response to. And then one year, they just didn't cook it enough, and they gave people the disease. And so... So then you overdo your regulation around it and you have to cook the heck out of it then before you put it in at all. Then you denature the protein so much your immune response is like, is that a virus? Is it not? And so what do you do? Oh, well, now they're not reacting enough. Let's put adjuvants in there. Then they start stacking up the adjuvants. And those are giving non-specific immune responses. So the viral particles of specific immune response, I'm making antibodies to this. But now you got non-specific being wound up around specific, and then the non-specific starts hitting other sites that it's not supposed to hit. And then you stack seven of those together in a day, and then you have all this wound up non-specific immunity. And if there was something already priming the system, who knows where it's going to go? That's where you get these kind of go off the edge cases. Yeah. I think it's relevant that you heard from all these mothers and you're hearing the same type of story over and over and over. That's clinical experience where sometimes you can't find it in a book or you can't say find it in the exact same way that it's written, but it's people's experiences, which is part of evidence-based medicine. Um, yeah. It's relevant. And so I think what you're describing is like this perfect storm. It's like a mess already. And then we're stacking it. And I think you can always apply the perfect storm or stacking a mess on a lot of conditions, right? I always feel like autoimmunity is... Yeah. A stacked mess. It's like you had some genetics that weren't quite set up right. And then the environment, because it's always about terrain and environment. And when you say a child is sick and then gets, you know, something that's supposed to help stimulate an immune response and it's already trying to do another immune response because it's already sick. Anyway, that's what it. Yeah, what you get all this non specific response. And, you know, autism all looks so autoimmune ish, like neuro autoimmune. And mm -hmm. I think we don't even know how to test for it yet. But yeah, that's what we're stuck with. And so, you know, if mercury is a neurotoxin, a immunotoxin, and an adjuvant, then, and you give someone a whole bunch of it, I think it was really good at doing that. But, you know, there's a lot of other ways to stimulate those responses. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should probably go down this tangent, but this makes me think about, this isn't my area, but there's all this conversation about like, you have low grade viral or like inactive XYZ Epstein-Barr, you know, that's a popular yeah, yeah. thing to talk about. And so yeah. what helps create that awakening or reactivity yeah. of Epstein-Barr? Yeah. Mercury's freaking great. Herpes viruses and mercury, boy, they just freaking love each other, you know? And yeah, we, I mean, for the readers, they think herpes one, herpes two, but you mentioned Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus, those are herpes five and seven, herpes six and in the nervous system. And 95% of the people have herpes six, you know? And so what wakes it up? And mercury was always good at that. And that was, there's some data around it, but it was like always everybody's experience. They get their amalgams out, they mercury detox, all of a sudden they're not getting cold sores or lesions. And it's like, that whole complex starts, stops, you know, refiring all the time like it used to. Mm. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to glutathione. I mean, uh, so mercury is just draining glutathione all the time out of the mm. system. It's shifting immune responses to these hyperinflammatory responses without the counter anti-inflammatory responses, the unbalanced immune response. So you tend to wind up big inflammatory things, but they're not specific. 
So it's a dysregulation. And low glutathione makes you more TH2, TH17 reactive, less TH1. And so you're not constantly controlling your viruses. And when they come out of the box, you freak out and over inflamed to them. And so, you know, mercury is one of those things that will wind up the virus that'll wind up a lot of these background problems. If we would oversimplify for a second, we're talking about the antioxidant that's like the boss at the liver. I freaking love glutathione also because yeah. I make it poorly and it's like does such great things. Yeah. Um, and I always say, okay, your glutathione's low. What's using it up? You know, we should always yeah. ask that question. But at the very end of the day, we're talking about how do we help our body process through things that it's already got, essentially. Yeah. So you've kind of alluded to this, but give us a quick laundry list of our primary environmental sources of mercury that we might want to be careful of. And instead of just fish, maybe give us a couple types that you think are biggest. And then, so let's talk about the sources really quick. Let's talk about the symptoms. And then, so sources, symptoms, and then, so I don't forget, I want to ask about, do you know that they hang out in certain areas just because that's the luxury of looking at the animals in the research lab? So you just get to have that kind of knowledge in your brain. You mean right? what organs accumulate? Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we talk about organs for sure. All right, so sources, of course, the silver fillings are half mercury. The rest is silver, a little copper, this and that. They're giving off mercury all the time as a vapor that you inhale, goes into your lungs, into your blood. They're also corroding, like rusting off of your mouth, and you're swallowing that all the time. Now, you swallow more than you inhale, but you don't absorb much of it, but it's a constant corrosive influence on your gut. It's also... Uh, a microbiome influence. It moves you towards certain microbiome and it blocks the movement of toxins out of the liver into the GI. So it's, like, it's like pushing back up the pipes. So that's a bad one. Vaccines, they're taking it out of there more and more, but that was a form called ethylmercury. And then you have fish. So fish and amalgams tend to be the biggest sources unless you're using skin lightening creams. So in Asia and Latin America, there's a value placed on not having a dark skin. Unlike here, where we value tan, there they naturally get fairly dark in the sun. And if you have light skin, that means you're upper class and you don't have to work in the sun. And so they use skin lightening creams. And some of those are ridiculously high in mercury. The mercury is the bleaching agent. So amalgams, vaccines, bleaching agents, and then fish. And fish is a really broad spread. It's not like all fish are the same. So it's basically the bigger the fish, the higher up the food chain you are, the more mercury you have. So much so that it's like one to 10,000 fold difference between an anchovy or a sardine and a swordfish or shark, really top of the line. Then right below swordfish, you got tuna and mackerel, the really big ones. And then between like a really big one and a small one, you know, there might be a five-fold difference. So you can find lists online of the relative ranking of things. But if you're working from smaller fish, you can eat a lot more. In fact, I know guys who eat a couple sardines every day, every meal, and they'll never have a high mercury level versus like 
famous people like Tony Robbins, who went to eating nothing but swordfish and tuna. He ended up with incredibly high level, 125 parts per billion mercury in his blood. And, you know, we got him all the way down just doing glutathione system upregulation and all the you know support for the enzymes, transporters and binders to go all with that. And so you can choose. And I tend to choose from uh, wild caught salmon. I'll even do, you know, farmed is ironically lower than wild, but farmed has a lot less of the other nutrients. But uh, in the salmon, you go with the smaller salmon, other kinds of small fish, you tend to be pretty good. You know, once in a while, I'll have, uh, you know, king salmon or a big steelhead or something like that. But you can really decide. It's just that when you're eating the big steak fish all the time, you go to really super high levels. So in fact, the chairman of IMAX Cinema, see, he got up to 75 parts per billion. And he has a permanent neurological disability. He walks with a cane now, where he used to be like this super athlete. And so mercury toxicity from fish is very, very real. It tends to be a little bit more economic. The people who can afford that stuff tend to get it. It's a lot of CEOs I treat who've been way too high. So then what does it do to you? Can right. I ask you if it matters yeah. where the fish is? Does it seem to matter where in the wild? Like, is there certain regions? Where it's higher Certain regions, yeah. The Indian Ocean tends to have a little bit higher levels around. Around Hawaii, they have really high level mercury fish, the really big ones. In fact, that's what Tony Robinson's doing, is flying it in from Hawaii because it's a more spiritual place and it's got high levels. It's just how the cycling works there. There's like off Hawaii, you got deposition from Asia. So they're burning all this coal, they're putting it into the air, it rains down, it methylates very quickly, and so it builds up the food chain a little bit more there. Mm-hmm. And those are the two areas that are known. But they're not like radically, like this one's 10 times higher than this area, you got to get it from this area. Mm-hmm. You know, the global dynamics of it kind of spread that all out. In lake fish, you can have drastically different levels because of geology of an area. But in general, it's, it's really size of the fish that you're looking for. And, you know, how far up the food chain is. So like in a, in a lake, you know, something like a walleye might be this big and you can get a tuna from the ocean this big. The walleye is going to be much higher mercury level. So the lake fish per size of fish, they're higher than the ocean going fish. Mm. But an ocean going fish would get to, you know, eight feet long, nine feet long. And so you're taking a snake out of this huge thing. Right. So then how does it affect you biochemically? All right. So fatigue and anxiety are the biggest two factors that you'll see. Anyone who comes into you exhausted and has anxiety, you could be looking at metals and it might be mercury, it might be others, but mercury is really good at it. So how do those work that way? In the brain, you have this yin-yang system of neurotransmission. You know, there's excitatory and inhibitory transmitters, uh, neurotransmitters. And the two dominant ones are glutamate and GABA. Glutamate being excitatory, GABA being calming and or inhibitory. And so the excess glutamate makes you into your sympathetic autonomic, makes you into fight or flight. And glutamate is a really good thing for being on it. So it makes you on it. You're kind of fight or flighty and that's good for memory. And so if you're into memorizing things and you're in school, you need a lot of that. But memory also comes with uh, primal things around it. You're remembering things that can kill you and things that can save you. So when that circuit's hyperfiring, you tend to get anxious and fearful. And so uh, hyper excitation of the glutamate receptors gives anxiety and mercury 
mercury attacks the glutamate receptors and makes them hyperfire. Necessarily make you make more glutamate, but it makes it more reactive against you. And that causes the anxiety, right? But that also puts you into fight or flight, deprioritizes detoxification on a cellular level and on a filtration level. And so the more that winds up, the less you detoxify it. So it kind of drives itself inward that way. Then how does it make you fatigued? It's working on a cellular level by damaging the mitochondria, by continuously depleting glutathione levels in the mitochondria. And that's a core antioxidant in the mitochondria. And you really need intense antioxidant activity in the mitochondria because you have big respiratory bursts bringing reactive oxygen species from the electron transport chain, and you have to be able to quench those all the time. In fact, the center of the mitochondria is more reduced than the cytoplasm, so it needs this intricate antioxidant system. And it's not just glutathione. There's something called thyrodoxin and thyrodoxin reductase that are super strong, and they're super big targets because they have reduced selenium in them. They're super strong targets for mercury. So mercury is damaging the antioxidant system in the mitochondria. There's a couple other ways that it damages it. So the mitochondria aren't making as much energy. There's oxidative damage to the membranes, and that's further damaging how the mitochondria work. And then at a thyroid level, that's a you know big metabolic trigger. You know your ability to create thyroid hormone, create T4, and then change T4 to T3. The thing that really turns on your metabolism. Mercury, cadmium, and arsenic all do this. They block the conversion of T4 to T3. And so that's lowering. You might be getting some weight. You're just running kind of slow. And then its effects on the kidneys and adrenals. All that just sort of bringing you down. The fight or flight is kind of burning you out at a cortisol level. There's damage at a chemical level. So that whole system goes down quite a bit. You can also have skin things, there's liver inflammation, liver blockage, and these are all ancillary problems that come up with it. Layman's terms for people really quick. Mitochondria is like the fountain of youth, in my opinion, right? It's like how cells make energy. So when we're assaulting that process, we're getting old faster. We're rusting faster. Rusting of the membranes, right? Can't even get nutrients into the membranes. I wanted to mention the glutamate, which is excitatory, the mercury, like I think you said, attacks or attaches to the glutamate. The glutamate receptor. So the system has a secretion of glutamate activating a receptor that activates the neurotransmission and creates the impulse. It's the receptor gets hyperreactive to the glutamate. So glutamate should become GABA if you have the right gene, SNP. I don't remember which one it is. And some people don't do that well anyway, right? So we're like hanging out in the neuroexcitatory state. So anxiety big thing, right? So we'll come back to this in a little bit. And then also you were saying, so fight or flight. So basically stress, like our body under stress is going to deprioritize typical things it would do. So ovulation, which equals fertility, um, detoxification, you know, because it's like, I have other stuff, like I'm really busy running away from the tiger. So I, you know, I'm just going to like sideline that stuff right now. So I think that's yep. important because very commonly, if there's uncontrolled stress, and unfortunately, high-performing individuals or high achievers or certain personality types really love to ignore stress signs and signals. I've been there. I've done that a lot, <laughs> many years. And so you don't even realize it because sometimes excitement can be read as stress as well or going from appointment to appointment appointment. And I just mentioned this because it seems like when things are just going so slow or something's not really working quite right, even if it typically works, I always stop and say, well, how much fight or flight are we in? You know, like, are we trying to put under the rug how much fight or flight we're in? Because it seems like when we're under tons of fight or flight, like 
everything else gets deprioritized, right? You just literally cannot heal because your resources are going other places. So side notes. Okay, cool. So any kind of symptom, but specifically neuro stuff, skin stuff, maybe thyroid stuff for sure. Just fatigue, you can't really put a finger on, especially. And there's a big list for fatigue and, and things that'll cause issues with mitochondria. You know, assaulting the adrenals, which you mentioned mercury is assaulting too. So next, let's talk about how you know that they're settling in these organs, because this is going to lead into the challenges with testing and understanding mercury as a problem. So this is like one of those topics. I know you don't feel this way, but in my world, I'm like, oh my gosh, this feels like a doomsday topic, right? Because it's a big one. You know, it's kind of distressing. It's like, oh my gosh, it's here and it's here and it's here. So talk to me about how we know that it's collecting in the certain organs. Like, is that common knowledge if we have the right information around mercury or is that clinical lab experience? No, it's all published and out there it's both. So there's data. I've participated in some of these things where we're looking at blood versus organ correlations. And each organ takes slightly different amounts into it, but they're all kind of correlated with the main game. The weird stuff is where the autonomics, where you have emotional issues and it starts collecting in one area versus another. And all of a sudden you have a ton in your thyroid, much more than anybody else. How do we even know that? We haven't even done enough autopsy work to even know that. Kind of where we got the clues from on people disproportionately accumulating it one nerve plexus versus another one. Organ versus another is from the work done with, oh God, what do they call those those injections that the ClinHeart School does? Neural therapy. They'll do DMPS and procaine and they'll do it in the different nerve bundles and stuff and all such tons of stuff will come out. Or they'll go and they'll do psychotherapy or, you know, family constellation therapy and then tons of metals come out. I don't want to interrupt you, but I want us to understand this because this has been coming up a lot in interviews and we talk about trauma. And so what you're saying is, when we got fight or flight or when there's stuff going on where how we're like collecting mercury in a certain place, we don't totally understand it, but there's therapies when we're doing trauma work, yeah, which doesn't have to be like a car accident. It can be like someone was mean to you. Emotional just like trauma work. Right. Cause yeah. I have people, I have people have really tough cases or sensitive people where like the more emotional work that they do, the better they keep getting. Right. Yeah. So it's just kind of interesting. But I wonder what happened when you say, oh, they did these therapies and then things released. What did that look like? Yeah, like all of a sudden there's a there's a ton more mercury that comes out when, you know, often they're doing like they'll take some chelator or something. And then, mm-hmm. you know, back they didn't used to have really sophisticated testing. So they that was where the challenge test came from. They didn't have good testing, so they got had to give you chelators and see how much comes out. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so all of a sudden a whole bunch more would come out after this trauma work, emotional work. And you know, I've done a little bit of stuff with even just like foot baths. Anything that affects your autonomics can release out of the tissues. And you get more into the blood than more into the urine. And a lot of that work happened before I really came around. And so I didn't do the analyses on it. But the people I know who are doing it, you know, I believe that this was going on. And I've definitely, you know, seen when I'm, you know, consulting for people and I do all this stuff, I'm like, now you got to find somebody to do some of the autonomic work on you. And it could be trauma recovery thing. It could be NAET, it could be EFT, you know, something for the X factor to release all these little latch points that you have. And as I get on, I would love 
love to not be running the company as CEO so much and be able to pursue some of these things and get some of this data and bring it out into the scientific literature and in the medical literature, how much this underlying psychological aspect is controlling so much of the perceived toxicity. Because like if you are holding a ton, let's use the thyroid, you're holding a ton of mercury in there. I'm not going to go do a biopsy on you. All I have is your blood. And if your blood's not screaming high, how am I supposed to know that this organ's really high? Something that is difficult. And yeah, we have animal studies, but, you know, unless we're like freaking out these animals and we don't know the key to the psychological structure of a bird, and so we can't make fun of it until it accumulates in some organ, it's going to be a while before we really get this stuff out and start to understand it. But somebody's got to pour some money into it to do that. To be clear, when they release this, it might feel okay, but it might feel like crap because now it would be free circulating. I mean, you find that all the time and people are toxic and you're detoxifying them and they go get a massage work. They feel like shit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, oh, what a great massage. It's like, oh, God, my freaking head. And then you give them binders, you give them the right detox stuff. And, oh, OK, that feels great. You know, and so in our detox system, we'll give you stuff to dump bile out of the liver because that's where the toxins come. And then we'll give you a binder to catch it all. And then people feel fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you see that you're squeezing it out of the tissues into circulation. And you can do that with physical manipulation, but you can do it also very heavily with this autonomic work. I feel like the gallbladder always gets assaulted, right? People really struggle with fat digestion and gall issues, as especially as yeah. we age. In fact, that's the core of our whole detox. We call it push-catch-liver detox, that we're coupling. We're doing things to work at a cellular level, but everything that we do, we couple it to traditional bitters and PC to get the liver to bile tree flow going because the transporters that move toxins out of your liver are bile transporters. And so they're moving toxins and bile into the bile tree, into the gall, and then secreting it out. People have a hard time. They get really locked up on that transition between the hepatocyte and the bile tree. And that's called intrahepatic cholestasis. So stasis of bile inside the liver versus extrahepatic, which is the gallbladder. That's what people think about. The only reason it happens in the gallbladder is because it was flowing so slowly out of the liver that it started to stagnate and gel up and get what they call biliary sludge. So you need to open that up. So what are the things that block that flow? Well, stress does. You know, stress being in fight or flight just stops that. That's why you stop being hungry when you're all stressed out. And when you chill out, you get hungry again because that bile flows. Estrogen dominance and estrogen works with the glutamate receptors and hyperfires the glutamate receptors. That's why you're estrogen dominant. You have what? Anxiety and irritability. The same thing you get when you're mercury toxic. And what's the opposite of that? Progesterone because progesterone is what? It's a GABA receptor agonist and it winds up GABA stuff and chills you out, makes you feel better. It's also a wicked bitter and it opens up the bile and opens up that flow. And endotoxin from leaky gut, from periodontitis, it's going in, creating microinflammatory states in the liver because it's concentrating in there and it's blocking that flow right out of there. And this is the thing to work on, really. You know, we say gut, but it's that bile flow and gut together. It's more specific. I always 
say, you know, I'm boring. Let's work on gut and liver because you need all of these things to work properly. But it's not but, simple at all. It's not see, simple at all. It reflects to the brain. It reflects to the autonomics. And then it allows the cells to dump. And it's the big hitch there. And you know, when it's flowing right, everything else starts flowing. People would miss this. So I want to give it a little lip service. I think phosphatidylcholine doesn't get the love that it could get. Like I actually did a detox class kind of recently. And when I was doing product recommendations, I said, I don't think most people would put PC on their list, but I think it's freaking amazing. It's amazing what it does. You know, it's all your membrane. It's part of the bioflow. So it's making mixed micelles with the bile salts and protecting the epithelia of the bile tree from all that detergent activity. And it's what fluidizes it. When people have sludgy bile, they need PC. And it's being drawn from their membranes all the time. And so the membranes are stressed. So you're putting it in. You're feeding the mitochondria. You're feeding the endoplasmic reticulum. You're feeding the bile flow. You're feeding the brain. You're feeding everything. It's like a core thing. And since since we make liposomes out of injectable grade PC, we're getting it all the time in our systems. And it was like one of my fun moments was being in a retreat with Joe Mercola and Ben Greenfield and Robert Slova, a couple other guys. And Joe brought his new latest tool. He's always trying to, you know, see how good he can get at things. And he had his phase angle measurement device, which is in measuring electrical resistance and it's supposed to key down on the membranes. And Emily Givler was there. And so she was measuring everybody. And I was at another house and I was coming over there. I was the last one there. And Emily's like, Chris is going to beat you all because he's a PC guy. (laughs) And we came in and he measured my phase angle and I beat all of them. And so they all started taking tons of PC after that. But PC does so many things. We just were about to release another PC product. And when I went into the long diatribe about PC, all, all my people we're like, this is beautiful. I love it so much. It's my favorite thing. It's great. Getting great sources is just... That's on our next conversation topic, which yeah. we're not going to get to today, but that was one of my topic points because yeah. it's a huge problem right now. So, okay, we got to get to the problem, which is we've got this mercury situation. We can test via urine and blood, but you can't necessarily see it. So let's talk about maybe what's on the market provocation, yay or nay, I think you have to provoke to see it. So that means like giving glutathione to get out of the tissue. Well, tell me what you think. I'll tell you what I know because I've studied it for 20 years and I've done 100,000 measurements or so. We used to say, oh, well, it's not in the tissues at all. So that was all, I'm sorry, it's not in the blood. It's all in the tissue. So we got to provoke it out, right? No, we just couldn't measure the blood before. There's more in the tissues than there is in the blood right? We know that, but it was an issue of detection. We couldn't measure the relevant levels in the blood. So we said, oh, there's none in there. And it's not really couldn't. It's just we didn't have commercially available stuff to measure the levels even in the urine. So you take a chelator, DMPS, DMSA, and did you ever measure the blood? None? No. You just measure the urine. And oh, all of a sudden there's a lot in the urine. So we must have pushed it out of the tissues and then it went into the urine. Well, for that to work, the chelator would have to get into the cells, right? It'd have to get into the tissues. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't. There's no intracellular penetration of DMSA or DMPS. There's no movement across the blood-brain barrier of DMPS or DMSA. So do you think we're not seeing a height? Like, is there an increase? There's probably no baseline, and then they do DMSA and then see higher. So, See, there is a baseline, but we weren't measuring it before. We weren't able to measure enough. So what happens is you soluble. So there's all this stuff in the blood, 
It's not not in the blood. It was always in the blood. And we've been able to measure stuff in the blood forever. It was just, there was the doctor's data method of the chelation and the urine. So they kept telling you, you can't measure it in the blood. You know, they have a red blood cell measurement for it. I got measurements from the 70s of people doing blood. Like, where'd that come from? But the levels are kind of low. So you need good technology. Now we have really good technology. We can measure so low and it's always there. And then it goes up after exposures and slowly comes down. There was this idea, they were like, oh, yeah, it's only in the blood for two, three days. So why was the half-life for methylmercury published in the 70s or 80s as being, you know, 40 to 60 days, depending upon the people? Inorganic mercury, 50 to 70 days half-life. Time down to baseline from one single tuna meal, 160 days in a healthy individual. It's not one, two, three days. It was just made up to support what was being used at the time. So... You got cells, you got blood, you got urine, you got stool, you measure them off, you got good technology, you can see what's going on in all of them. And there is a lot in the blood, there's a lot in the lymph, on the proteins in the lymph. And when the kidneys, there's a lot on the outside. What I'm saying is sort of the soft tissue is really close to the blood. And you take a chelator and all of a sudden, all this mercury is soluble to the kidneys. And these DMPS complexes, the mercury, DMSA complexes with mercury, suddenly can be flushed right out. And so your urine levels go way up. And then your cells start re-equilibrating with the blood. So there's a steady state between the blood and the tissues. In fact, I did some blood studies, just some quick ones with Jeffrey Morrison out in Manhattan. And it was a, a mutual friend was getting IVs done of DMPS. And after DMPS, so you see your blood, after DMPS level, it's a little bit lower and her urine level's real high. And then the next day, it's back up to right to where it was. So you're just re-equilibrating everything, but you're not actually going into the cell and getting it. To get it out of the cell, you were more right about the glutathione, but then you have to upregulate phase two and phase three. You need glutathione as transferase upregulation. You need the glutathione in there, and then you need the transporters to dump it into the blood. When you're doing that, you're doing high NRF2 upregulation. NRF2 is the trigger above the chemistry that pushes stuff out of the cell. And you've got a week into doing high doses of that, you'll see your blood level go up. And then you take a week off and it goes down below where it was before. So it's like, what are all these triggers? What's working where? Chelators take from the blood, dump into the urine. That's what they do. NRF2 upregulators push from the cells into the blood. I don't use the chelators. I just use the NRF2 upregulators. And then the liver harmonizers with the bioflow dumpers and the binders. And that's how I set up my detox systems. And it works really, really well. And it's not stressing the system. It's moving shit around and not having the liver going or not having the kidneys going. That's how you're really going to damage somebody. But once you get it all coupled, that your bioflow is coupled to the movement out of the cells, you got a binder on board, your kidneys are working well, you can move a lot of metal without too much stress. Put less trash in the top if you can, or get rid of the sources. I'm talking about mercury, yeah. Sorry, uh, but in general. For a second. Oh, okay. Yeah. Put less garbage in the top of the funnel, right? Improve. The answer is to improve how your body manages it, which isn't, I mean, it's simple, but not simple, right? I mean, it is complex. Simple, but not simple. And you can never go for It's there. good, you know, because we're not being doomsday-ish. We're like, oh, there's options yeah, for this. No, I think it's the, doable. Yeah. I think the issue is how do you know 
it's needed. So let's talk about testing because I know this is like your jam because you have a special yeah. test and like we have other things on the market, but how is what you have different? How do we make sure like, so how do we figure out if this is really a problem for someone? Right. All right. So if, if you're coming to us, I'm going to do our mercury tri test where we do blood, hair, and urine. So in the blood, we're saying that's your central thing that's touching everything. So that's representing the aggregate of your body burden. And yeah, you might have some organ because of autonomic issues is hyperaccumulating, but we have no idea how to chemically test that. So in the animal models, we know the blood's in relationship to the rest of the body. So we got the blood and we separate methylene and organic mercury. So another problem with the blood before is the blood over represents methylmercury and underrepresents relatively inorganic mercury. So if you have equal body burden of both, and I look at methyl and inorganic, methyl will be like 15 times higher than inorganic. Well, that's fine. We put them on different reference ranges and you do them independently. But before you could separate those two, it didn't make any sense. So you have 30 amalgams, eat no fish. I have no amalgams and I eat fish. I'm the one with all the mercury in the blood. But then we look at the urine and you have high urine, I have low urine. Well, why is that? Well, because methylmercury doesn't go out in the urine. Only inorganic does. And that's all. Then you can say, well, just measure urine, blood for methylmercury, urine for inorganic mercury. But the kidneys get all screwed up, and then they stop putting out the inorganic mercury. And you get a massive inorganic mercury in the blood, but none in the urine. So we can't really trust that. we got to look at both of those. Hair is a surrogate for your ability to process and move methylmercury. And so we do hair, methylmercury in hair to methylmercury in blood. We do inorganic mercury in blood to inorganic mercury in urine as these excretion ratios. Oh, and about hair. You're the one with all the amalgams. You have no mercury in your hair. I eat the fish. I have it all in my hair. What does the old naturopath say? Oh, you're moving it out of your brain. She's stuck. You know, it's like, no, there's only one form in the hair. And so once you get all that down, you're like, okay, now we got at least got a good measurement here. So now we know what your methylmercury exposure is, what your inorganic mercury exposure is, how your kidneys are working, and this surrogate for how well you mobilize methylmercury out, that being the hair. And then we'll do another test of just blood for nutrient metals like calcium, magnesium, zinc, copper, selenium, cofactors, and your major toxins, arsenic, cadmium, lead, you know, a couple others in there. So we're going to get this sort of map. Then we're also going to do a clinical workup. What if you used to have a ton of amalgams? You got them out, but you never detoxed and you don't eat fish. Now, we're not going to see a lot of mercury in you, but we know, now talk about local accumulation, wherever you had in the jawbone and in the skull, you're going to have a lot of mercury in there. If we put you through a detox, you'll start to be sore in here and you'll start moving stuff out. So we have to look at clinical and history. We have to do the testing and then we can go and we can decide what to do. So then the challenge test, challenge test, Remember I said, you're going to take the chelator. It's going to take stuff from blood and lymph and let you pee it out if your kidneys are working. Remember I said the kidneys can get shut down in the transporters and you're going to have high blood, low urine. Well, those same transporters move the chelator conjugates out too. And so you can really underrepresent that. I've seen people with high blood levels and low challenge tests because of that damage to the kidneys. So that's why I like to use ours and the chelators, especially when things, kidneys, liver are blocked up and you take chelators, you start stirring that pot up. 
That's how I got into this whole thing. I was just going to do testing and I started taking, I got all my amalgams taken out. I started taking tons of DMSA. I wasn't getting anything in the urine. So what do you do? You take more, you're not getting anything. You take more until I was just decimated. And I was watching all these functional medicine talks and I shifted my thinking to liver GI and I had this stuff that you know was like little sand grains and chelator on it, and I just ate it so it would pass through my GI and then took stuff for the liver. Boom, I just fixed everything. And then from there, I got into how do you get glutathione in? You make a liposomal glutathione. And then what else goes in? NRF2 upregulation, AMPK, metabolic stuff, mitochondrial stuff. You start putting it all together until you have this whole system. So I'm fast rambling here to get us through everything. But that's why the forcing or challenge testing, and that was kind of okay when we didn't have anything better. And just to finish it off is one story where they use DMSA, which is the worst of them all. Like it's the most tolerable, but it doesn't work for shit for mercury. They had a, a group of people in a cohort that used to work in a chloralkali facility. That's where you get pools of mercury as an electrode for splitting salt into lye and hydrochloric acid or making chlorine. They had guys who worked for for over three years in a chloralkali facility, and they'd been out for a year. So the acute was gone, but the residual was there versus the general population. And before the chelator, you could see in the urine the difference that they were higher in these, the ones who worked in the chloralkali previously. Then when you took the chelator, it washed the difference out totally. <laughs> you couldn't tell who had the mercury exposure or not. Not helpful at all. Because DMSA doesn't work on inorganic mercury. It only works on methyl mercury. So the inorganic exposure, amalgams, it'll suck on that. It'll be okay on fish. This is good because I feel like I need a chart now about this. And this is why, I mean, I'm really glad we had this conversation because it's complex. And that's why sometimes it's like, oh, do I not want to address that? So I think there's two questions I have left. And that is, it doesn't seem like it would be a very good idea. Everyone can be support their detoxification. But I think you would have to be careful if you still have mercury fillings, right? Right. So you never take chelators when you still have mercury fillings. They actually suck the mercury, not from the amalgams, but you have a local high in your soft tissues, massive concentrations in there in your GI, and you mobilize some of that into the blood. I did it, of course, because I did all the stupid things on myself, and it's horrible. So you don't want to take chelators when you still have amalgams in. You can do these glutathione-based systems of detox, but like I titrate people up to really high levels. You just don't want to get to the highest levels. You can go low, mid-level, and you can keep draining the stuff out. You can get your body working better. And then when you got the money to get them out, then you can go up to the big one. Okay. I love nutrients and mineral patterns are really fascinating. And that's a whole topic around liposomal discussions later. But are there certain mineral patterns that you see with mercury toxicity? Uh, you know, you mean like in hair? Oh, well, you said, depending on how it's being tested. I mean, you were talking about testing it and I thought, oh, okay, maybe there's a particular Yeah, pattern. well, we just test mercury in the hair because I'm not so mm -hmm. sure about all the mineral. I, you know, I know there's the trace mineral tissue analysis mm -hmm. or whatever they call it there. And I'm just not so sure about that. I know there's a whole school of using it and it's like right. all these ratios of everything. Yeah, and I've been 
You know, in the in literature, the it's always like, you know, there's only like two elements supported for hair being a correlation of uh, correlate of blood. So I never dug into it much. But, you know, mercury itself definitely dysregulates sodium potassium transporters and the calcium magnesium transporters and dysregulates zinc copper homeostasis and, you know, lowers zinc levels. So that's where you're going to see problems. There's always a place for zinc and magnesium. Incidentally, when the toxin transporters that move out of the cell, that move through the liver, move into the bile, they're magnesium ATPases. They use magnesium, which is why your energy goes down a little bit when you, mm. you know, you prioritize the detox, and they use magnesium as a cofactor, which means magnesium is essential. Magnesium also puts you into parasympathetic. And potassium is a parasympathetic, you know, sodium and calcium are sympathetic. So when you're wanting to detox, you need to emphasize potassium, magnesium. And zinc. Mm-hmm. In summary, the zinc can be low, the magnesium can be low. And just in general, so I always think about these as all electrolytes, but if the electrolytes are affected, I feel like the adrenals get affected, which we've already discussed. But you might see low zinc because we're messing with copper homeostasis. We might see low magnesium and we might see issues with electrolytes, but it's focus on potassium. Did I get that right? Yeah. So that I was going for really the parasympathetic minerals, mm-hmm. you know, potassium and magnesium, but magnesium mm-hmm. is also. Yeah that transporter, you know, this is all going to help it does everything. the system rebuild itself very nicely. And mercury occupies spots on metallothionine, which is kind of like ferritin for iron and ceruloplasm for copper. It's a big binding protein mm-hmm. and a bank for zinc. And so as you displace mercury out of that, zinc's going to be pulled from your reservoirs mm-hmm. into your banking system, which is one of the other reasons you need to replete zinc during detox. But it, they're always fighting for the same places, including the same enzymes, except that mercury has a higher affinity for those enzymes by 10 million fold. Toxins are so annoying. They're always taking up space where they shouldn't be and they're causing <laughs> dysregulation. Oh. They're just obnoxious. So, yeah. and if at first you don't succeed, there's a, probably another angle. So, Dr. Shade, we invited you here today because I knew you could speak heavily about this topic. I look forward to the next conversation about liposomal. You talked about the Mercury Tri Test, which is a Quicksilver product. Quicksilver makes beautiful glutathione. Where can people find you online? Yeah, quicksilverscientific.com. You'll find a lot there. You'll find there's a YouTube channel, uh, Quicksilver Scientific YouTube channel. There's Dr. Christopher Shade Instagram. And there's probably other Quicksilver Instagrams, but I don't know what they are. But the Dr. Christopher Shade is good because I put a lot of content in there. Just start from there and you'll find uh, more than you can imagine. Cool. Well, I had fun talking about this today. Thanks so much for coming on. All right. Thanks, Chris. So what'd you think? If you liked this episode, feel free to let us know at reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed or share it with a friend. The nicest thing you can do for us or me here is to share this podcast with a friend and review it. You can even take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, tag me anti-inflammatory nutritionist. So my detox masterclass and protocol do really make a good compliment to this episode overall. And if you own the masterclass and protocol, now you'll get access to future updates when I do it live again. And I can guarantee that I am always testing and refining in my private practice. So you will see updates to those protocols that will be included. I hope you enjoyed what I felt was a pretty reasonable approach to Mercury with Dr. Shade. And if you liked this one, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast because his encore episode will also blow your mind. 
One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock.